Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Antonia and Ellie to talk about volcanoes, how easy they are to predict and whether we'd want to live near them. Antonia, this came about because you recently visited Mount Etna, so what did you learn there? What was the most interesting thing? Yeah, so I went on a tour and we walked around on the lava fields and the guide was quite knowledgeable. He'd been there for a few years and seen a few eruptions in his time. And he goes up and down, taking tourists like me uh, up the mountain uh, every day. Um, so he had a lot to share. There were some really interesting things. Um, but the thing that surprised me was someone said that people who, who have got houses and businesses sort of around the volcano can't get building insurance and I guess I can see why because it's I think it was the largest or most active volcano in Europe so I can see why insurance insurers are a bit nervous about it but then why do people still live there I'm sure you know there must be a way for you to live there otherwise you know wouldn't it just be not worth the risk of constantly thinking is my house going to be there or you know what could happen when the volcano does erupt <laughs> i like how out of all the i assume there's a lot of sciencey stuff there the thing you took away was some sort of engineering gear why can't i get insurance <laughs> I get, yeah there, i mean i think because maybe for an audio medium as well there were some great pictures and some great views and there was a lot of Here's a crater from 2002, 2003, but it's better with pictures. So that's why uh, I thought that was a more interesting fact to share. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I would I would like to think that there are companies that would just give you really expensive building insurance because of that perceived high risk. Yeah, surely they just make loads of money, wouldn't they? Like, you just charge an absolute fortune and then if it does erupt, you, you like as the insurance company, you're like, well, I told you. <laughs> Maybe people can, in theory, get insurance, but just don't because it's so ridiculously expensive. They'd just rather rebuild their house or deal with it as and when it comes, maybe. Yeah. I guess that's something we'll get into. Like, how do they predict when a volcano will erupt and how? And what would insurance companies do with that information, if anything? Mm -hmm. Ellie, I guess you've got a different perspective on volcanoes with your background in zoology. Yeah, I know nothing about health insurance, that's for sure. Um, but there's some very cool animals that use volcanoes in their everyday lives. The first one, I think, is probably my favourite. It's called a volcano snail, which is it's a little bit of a misnomer because it doesn't really live in volcanoes, but it lives in like hydrothermal vents under the sea. Like a mile and a half down, this little snail is like grooving around and it's like 750 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's so wow. hot, but it survives because it uses... They're like minerals and the stuff all coming out of the vents and it builds like a shell and the shell is made of iron sulfide and it like builds a suit of armour to help it survive. And it's like, it's a metal snail. It's incredible. That is very That's cool. so cool. Or so hot. <laughs> <laughs> so hot right now. I guess if, if that snail can see some benefit to living near a volcano and uh, filling some sort of particular niche yeah definitely like it's really 
it's gone hard on that one niche I would say it's like the only <laughs> place it's found is like this tiny space in the Indian Ocean and it's just there chilling I mean potentially it could be another like hydrothermal vents around the world but you have to go there to find out and I think that's pretty tricky to be honest and they only found it in like 2015 so they didn't even know it existed for a long time all right I was wow. gonna say I thought it was because that snail was just used to living in that area it would be able to leave it because it's so well adjusted to living near that hydrothermal vent yeah it's really carved out a little home for itself yeah but if that snail has found its niche maybe the people that live near volcanoes also have some sort of niche I don't know if they've managed I don't know if humans have managed to survive in 750 Fahrenheit but <laughs> yeah I think the main thing is that no one really lives in the most dangerous parts of the volcano like the snail does <laughs> the snail just out there on a limb on its own <laughs> oh, but I was gonna say maybe like their culture is sort of built up living near that volcano is maybe not, not so much the physical aspects but more the social aspects and their society they've got great agriculture there because of the minerals and nutrients that are found in the soil thanks to the previous volcanic eruptions so yeah they've definitely built a culture around having that resource there if you can call a volcano a resource <laughs> that's so true yeah, i never thought of it like that way like as a beneficial thing but i guess like for the snail it's beneficial like it's it's the whole habitat so yeah i guess maybe there are benefits to volcanoes that we didn't consider mm. another thought about volcanoes is it's one of the ways we get new material on the crust on the earth's crust yeah because in general, we don't create new minerals and materials. We just kind of dig them up and then it becomes more and more dispersed as we sort of refine it into what we want to use and then throw it away. And volcanoes just come up with this stuff. Volcanoes make like whole islands, don't they? They like yeah. generate whole places. Yeah, they generate be- landmass. I think I saw an article about a new island has been discovered in Hawaii because of a volcano. But that happens all the time. And I thought, what? This is this is like such news to me that there is a new island that's just appeared in the sea or ocean. I love it. I think that's amazing. And like still as well. Like I feel like this is the kind of thing that would have happened like way back billions of years ago. But it's like yeah. September 20th, just a new island rocked up. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess one thing we wanted to know, going back to the endurance thing, and also apparently to geotechnical engineering and mining as Antonio's just mentioned is um if you can predict the volcanoes would that affect how people treat them or what people do near them would you be more or less likely to live near one or find the earth's resources from one in my very um tourist experience what the uh, volcanic activity meant was because they saw activity and it could be dangerous um we couldn't go all the way up to the top so that's my, my little slice of how it affects what you can do. But some of the things that they told us that they were monitoring to assess basically the risk of volcanic activity was temperature and the gas composition coming from the vents. And so they have a sort of um, levels of risk uh, system, like high or very high. There, because it's a volcano, it was all, it's always very high, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, how how do you how how do you go on with that? Oh, I'll tell you an interesting fact that I found when I was doing some research for this um, was from the Smithsonian Museum's volcanism program. 
uh, where they say that there are at least 20 volcanoes erupting at any one time. What? In the world? Yes. I mean, I don't live near one, so that just seems like craziness to me. But I, I guess a lot of those could be in unpopulated regions. Did you say 21? Just constantly? 20 at any one time. Yeah. Not not the same 20. It could be like any yeah. 20. One might stop, another one might start. Some do seem to erupt for quite a long time. But it's not necessarily the big, explosive, scary thing that you see in the movies. It's just generally leaking lava. Does it have like a certain like threshold? Because if it's just, you know, like doing a little bit of gas and a little, you know, couple of things of lava, does that like not really count? Does it have to like really go for it to count as an actual eruption? So I found some categories that people put eruptions into. One was effusive. And the other one, explosive. Oh, so does effusive mean it's just like genuinely leaking a bit of lava or gas? Yeah, or so it could be, it might not even just, so sometimes it's not lava, but it's actually rock. So it's already sort of formed and cooled down and solidified. You know, so, so they also categorize it by what kind of things are coming out. So if it's mostly gas or if it's slow moving lava, effusive can be more dangerous than the explosive ones because of the material that that comes out am i making sense i feel like you said an effusive thing is completely solidified as if it's not erupting which confused me a little bit but i think you mean that it's sort of occasionally throwing out big rocks of some sort yeah so when a volcano erupts it doesn't just erupt vapor or liquid but it can also erupt with solid and i was really surprised about that because i was just picturing oh so rocks just fall out the sky (laughs) i had read something about pyroclastic flows which you tend to think of a flow as being a liquid thing but no it was pretty much like gas ash and rocky particles so yeah it seems to be well known in volcanology circles it's crazy to me that molten rock is even a thing. Like, <laughs> the rock gets so hot that it melts and then it, like, flows down the mountain. Like, that just seemed wild. Like, it throwing out solid pieces makes more sense in my head than it being, like, it's so hot that it melted the rock and now, like, hot rock is just everywhere. Like, that's just, that's wild. That's pretty much how you make glass products, though, to make the, the panes in the window that are next to me pretty much rocks were melted and turned into glass sand well yeah Isn't sand melted to make glass but then sand i guess is just bits of tiny rock right yeah i think it's specifically silicon dioxide oh uh, we could go down the route of talking about glass compositions which i used to study but maybe we shouldn't do that <laughs> you can save that for another one yeah. yeah but talking about silicon the content of silicon also changes how how the lava flows so maybe it is relevant to this topic. So does lava flow differently depending on the volcano? Like if it's a more silicony area? That's a good question. We don't know, but if anyone knows, please tell us because I'm intrigued. Surely it must make a difference, right? The volcano, like a volcano in Europe versus a volcano in Hawaii, like what they're spewing out might be different. Is that a thing? Well, the same volcano can also do different types of eruptions. So it will be at different temperatures, different material inside it. And also, it's not just like material coming from the crust, it's deeper. Hmm, don't know. How how far does it go? How different is the material? I imagine there are a lot of multi-dimensional diagrams that have been drawn by geologists and volcanologists that talk about different magma compositions. Because strange-shaped diagrams are something I vaguely remember from my undergraduate degree in earth science. <laughs> But yeah, I can definitely see how different compositions combined with different temperatures would create 
different viscosities. That makes sense to me. But you also mentioned there can be different types of eruptions from the same volcano. Did you happen to come across anything that explained why they're different? No. (laughs) That's okay, because neither did I. Ah. That's what I was wondering when I was doing the research. I found a lot of sort of quite generic stuff that was like, they just kind of look at it and collect all these data and they know. Mm. And then at the other end of that, I went down scientific academic published papers route that got really, really specific really quickly and just confused me. Yeah, I started reading the US Geological Survey about their volcanic threat assessment to try and understand how they assess threats. Unfortunately, because it's an ongoing thing, it didn't explain the methodology in this paper. It just found the results. And I wanted the methodology. But interesting, they have in general classified them with a volcanic explosive index. And then they talk about different types of eruptions. And it seems like they've named them after places. So there's the Hawaiian eruption, Strombolian eruption, a volcanian eruption. Yeah, you just got bored at that point. They just had enough. They wanted to go to the pub. Volcanian eruption. Come on. Yeah, we can't we can't think of anything more original now. It's just a volcano that's erupting. Not spelt volcano, but Vulcanian. I don't know how to really pronounce it. But like Vulcans, like As in Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Okay. Figure out how does a Vulcan erupt? They're not meant to do that, right? They're meant to be all about reason and logic. Ooh. Are there volcanoes on Vulcan? Are we missing something? <laughs> I did come across a paper about the Las Palmas eruption last year, which I somehow completely passed me by. And I find that odd because that's not too far from here. It's in the Canary Islands, right? And it's quite a popular holiday destination. Is that the Lanzarote one? That area, yeah. It erupted for 86 days, finishing on Christmas Day last year. Wow. Did someone throw something in it? I always feel like, you know, when they finish at like weird times, like someone's had enough and they're like, right, we need to sacrifice <laughs> something. Someone trek up to the volcano, we'll chuck it in. It's Christmas. I've had enough of this. Put your turkey in the volcano, calm it down. <laughs> Can you stop an eruption? That's a thought, isn't it? If you pour cold water on it, could it stop it? But How much cold water did you have to pour on it if there is magma erupting to solidify the magma though? And would that work? Because some of the eruptions are due to a pressure buildup, right? Which is when the magma can't escape. Mm. So if all you're doing is creating a plug that will become pressurised. <laughs> Such a really bad idea. <laughs> I think you'd make it work. Yeah. And create a load of steam in the process. But then if it's pressure, how is it still going for 83 days, 86 days? Like you'd think pressure would be like one huge... Mm. I got the impression it depends on the type of volcano, but they did say that they looked at stress buildup in the earth. So sometimes it's sort of a weakness that it's found in the mountain. So maybe as it was erupting, it kind of found new weaknesses. And so that's why it just kept going. Oh, so it like exploited it more. Did it like weaken the mountain then as it erupted? Yeah. And then like it kept going and then there was more cracks and more cracks. Yeah. There must be a case study on this more. on this eruption. I think in my head I thought volcanoes did like a day. You know, like, oh it's erupted. What was the name of that volcano? Because now I'm gonna look it up. It just said it was on La Palma. It seems to be the whole thing is pretty much a volcano. Oh, wow. And they just classify it in different zones depending on what's erupting. Someone did some modelling to predict what sort of eruptions would occur and what the effects would be. And they based it on things like the previous lava flows in the area and how far they spread and the sorts of ash clouds and ash deposits that would develop 
again based on other volcanoes around the world and then they tied that in with sort of weather data to predict where these ash clouds might go depending on the direction and strength of the wind and i guess whether it's raining i guess they determined what was the sort of most important things to monitor like knowing how far it might go and protecting those homes and businesses and infrastructure or yeah like preventing ash from disrupting aviation i never fully understood why that was a thing do you remember like i don't remember what year it was that huge icelandic volcano erupted and then no flights could fly because they were worried about all the ash getting in the propellers or the engines of the planes but like why why was that bad what was wrong with the ash that it was so like damaging because i just assumed it was going to be like thick fog but obviously it was more than that right Guess you don't really want foreign materials in your engine. I mean, I suppose, yeah, it's not worth the risk, is it? If they're like, oh, we're not sure what it'll do. <laughs> Let's fly a passenger plane full of people across the sky. <laughs> yeah, I just I just assumed it would reduce the amount of air going into it. But maybe, maybe you're right, maybe there is more to that and it depends on the exact composition. So obviously, if you have less air going in, you have less complete combustion, so you don't have as much power from the engines. I'm completely guessing this is how um, airplane engines work, based on our episode about how cars work. <laughs> might be very wrong actually i've found volcanic ash is hard and abrasive and can cause significant wear to propellers and turbo compressor blades and i i remember this now actually being on mount etna thinking everything is jagged like i vaguely put my hand down to support me as i lost my balance and then i got a cut from just holding i didn't fall significantly or anything i just kind of wobbled grabbed some rock yeah definitely wouldn't just want to chuck it into uh, into my plane and see what happens. Fair enough. So it is pretty abrasive, pretty sharp stuff. Yeah. And you were right as well in that it would contaminate the uh, fuel air mix. Yes, that's partly right. Yeah. Good to know. I've learned something from doing this podcast already and it's been useful for future podcast episodes. Great. One thing I guess people need to think about when they're looking at the risks of volcanoes is how many people live near them. And this mm. is kind of what we're talking about in this episode, isn't it? It's, would you want to live near one? <laughs> Why would you live near one? It turns out millions of people live near volcanoes. Wow. Millions and millions. I found a list of sort of the top 10 most highly populated volcanoes. The most populated one is in Mexico and it has 6 million people living within 5 kilometres. Wow, okay. And uh, it last erupted in 1952. Did any of the lava flows like get 5 kilometres or is that one that just does a little fizzle of gas and then that's it? I didn't really find a lot of information on that. I got distracted by the fact that only three people died as a result of lightning strikes caused by the eruptions. So no one died because of the ash and because of the lava or anything, but because of volcanic lightning. Because of volcanic lightning? Yes. And I just thought this is a mad thing that films made up to make volcanoes seem even more dangerous. Wow. But no, it's it's an actual phenomenon that's not all that well understood. Wow, that's so... Like, can you imagine? Just I'm, I'm just visualising this whole thing and seeing a an eruption which could be clouds or gas or or like hot glowing uh material and then just also lightning (laughs) strikes at the same time like how incredible would that be to see if you're at a safe distance Yeah, if, you, if you're standing in the midst of it, maybe not so yeah. impressive, maybe just terrifying. Yeah, six million people are legging it and Antonio's there like taking pictures <laughs> trying to get it in the frame. <laughs> 
I mean, someone's got to record it, right? Otherwise it didn't happen. That's so true, especially in this Instagram generation that we live in. <laughs> it wouldn't just be for the gram, it'd be for the news. Getting the quest from the BBC. But you see, like, um, I don't know a word for it, but, you know, when, when you have news articles and they put together all the mobile phone footage and it's just, you know, of particular things and it's that sort of quick response of, of an event or uh, some some disaster. So it can be useful. Yeah, definitely useful. People love that stuff, especially now because everyone has a camera, right? So if you're there, whip it out and then BBC will ring you up and say, can we stick it on our broadcast at 6 o'clock? I'm not too sure that's good advice for documenting volcanoes, though. Just have all like the general public just running towards <laughs> this eruption with all these, this dangerous gas and lightning around it. No, no. Don't run towards the danger. <laughs> Excellent tip. That is actually <laughs> very true. Yeah, self-preservation. It's like that guy, you know, in Jurassic Park when they're like all the animals escape, all the dinosaurs. And then he like runs back for the margarita in like the new one. He like he's like trying to escape. And then he's like, no, the margaritas. And he goes back to get them. I love that bit. But then you also talk about this film, which was about a couple of volcanologists, an actual married couple who were so good at documenting volcanoes, but unfortunately got caught out by one. Yeah, so it's called Fire of Love. It's this amazing, like, new documentary, like, indie film. And, yeah, it's exactly what you said. This um, They're called Catcher and Maurice, and they were married. And they were like super into volcanoes. But I think, I'm not sure who was the filmer, but they also like filmed a lot of it as well and themselves in the process. But yeah, unfortunately, they both died in a volcano related incident. But because they filmed so much of their lives and so much of like the work that they did, they've made this film based on like hours and hours of archive footage that they like made when they were alive, which is insane. And also the footage is incredible. Like the shots that they've got are amazing i really want to go and watch the whole thing it's super new as well that only came out like a couple of months ago oh okay i'll keep a look out for things that does sound interesting yeah how can you get volcanic lightning though i'm thinking because it's like generating a spark and so you can generate spark if there's temperature or low pressure and then it will spark more easily at a auto ignition conditions Am I thinking correctly? It sounds like no one knows for sure, but there are a few potential mechanisms. So there's the obvious just you know, things rubbing against each other, similar to what happens in the clouds with ice particles. And you can get ice particles forming above the volcano when the plume reaches a tall enough height and obviously things crystallise. One other suggestion was from the radioactive particles that are ejected. So you've got radioactive particles in the magma and they can create ionisation events. And if you're creating ions, which is what ionisation is, then that can lead to a potential difference, wow. which can create a flow of current. So a spark. Wow. Yeah. Another weird one that I didn't understand was just from rocks breaking apart oh. to create charged particles, which apparently can happen nearer the vent. The paper that has done this, they have literally smashed two particles together. They're sort of micron, hundreds of microns in diameter. They're silicate particles again. And then they've made this complicated setup to measure the charge that results. And they don't seem to have a very good explanation for the mechanism happening at a smaller length scale than that. And I'm sitting here thinking, with my interest in atoms, how does that work? How are you creating some sort of ionisation from that? I'm also thinking, this sounds really bad, how could they not know if they know what rock they have and they smash it together? But I guess then actually rock is a very complicated material. It's not just like a metal 
or element. It's such a mix. Well, I think this was pure silicate particles. I didn't see where they got them from, but you can buy like sort of lab grade silicates, I guess. And then they smashed it together and saw lightning. <laughs> they, they observed a charge. Okay. Okay. Using some charge collection devices. No, they didn't actually see lightning. Um, but if you have a charge buildup, then obviously that can lead to a, a discharge. And if it's um, mm. if the discharge is big enough, I guess you would see lightning sparks. I just Googled volcanic lightning because I was intrigued. And if you go on Google Images, they are incredible. Like I feel like they're very highly edited, but they look insane. It's like coming out of the ash cloud. Apparently it's a thing. That they, if the ash cloud is big enough, then you might get volcanic lightning. Right. Yeah, so if we're going back to predicting the risks from a volcano, I wonder how they even attempt to factor that in if the mechanisms aren't that well understood. I guess it's just from observing previous eruptions from similar volcanoes. And does it have the same characteristics? All right, then maybe lightning is likely. Yeah, that's true. Maybe you've got like previous data on like similar ones in the area. Because I feel like volcanoes tend to be like, there's like a volcanic area, isn't there, because of all the plates and all of that sort of thing. So like if one does something nearby then maybe it's likely that the others will do similar things. Yeah, a lot of the articles that I saw about forecasting did seem to be based on the previous activity of the volcano, although they recognise that previous activity doesn't necessarily predict future activity. <laughs> I sound like a financial analyst here because they say the same thing. <laughs> really? I was just going to say that. It's like, was it like prior indication does not in- <laughs> indicate future performance? No. <laughs> But there can be changes happening below the Earth's crust mm. that we can't necessarily see. Um, like I saw a lot of talk about um, under, trying to understand the, the volcanic plumbing, so how the magma chambers underneath are connected together, but I didn't get a good description of how that affects what we see at the surface. I mean, how do you even start with volcanic plumbing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still on volcanic lightning. I, I can't do volcanic plumbing. Because <laughs> it sounds like we've found a lot. Can we just get a normal word and then put volcanic in front of it and that is a thing? Yes, (laughs) definitely. 100% that is true. Volcanic cake. I made a volcanic cake. Oh my God, I can't believe I haven't brought this up. When I was in school, we had a geography lesson, homework thing, and it was to make a cake in the shape of a volcano. And I did, and it was chocolate, and I had like pieces of crystallised ginger for the lava, and I had icing that was like red and yellow and orange. It was incredible. And we cooked it in a pudding basin so that it was like domed and it had the crater on top. That's probably the best cake I've ever made, actually. It was chocolate, obviously. <laughs> All the best volcanoes are. And it had like uh, flakes <laughs> crumbled up to be rock. Volcano cake, 100% a thing. There you go. Yeah, I remember also building a volcano, but we didn't want to, because we also had to do the eruption in inverted commas. But the only way we were told was bicarb and vinegar and I didn't want to make a cake that I couldn't eat. So we just made it paper mache. I feel like paper mache was traditional. I don't know why we decided that cake was the way forward, but we did. I also have a feeling that chemical reaction isn't what's happening to create a volcanic eruption in actual volcanoes. There is CO2. That is part of it. But I think there's also sulfur, which was not in the bicarb and vinegar thankfully otherwise we wouldn't be able to eat it <laughs> no it's it's not a thing i've seen coming up that they look at the, the ph and uh, the different the, the whether it's a base and an acid reacting together what i'd seen was more about you know as we were saying like different compositions and different different crystals um crystal sizes and crystal shapes in there that would affect lava flows i've just taken your wacky 
crazy conversation and turn it into something far too practical. <laughs> we just want to eat cake, Laura. There is always time for cake, volcano or otherwise. Is that a quote from somewhere? Um, no. Oh. That came out of my own head. But is there time to have cake if you see something happening and maybe the early warning system of the volcano is going would you then still have time to eat cake yeah how much time have you got that's what i want to know like how do they predict it that it's going to go off and if they do predict it like is it within 12 hours 24 hours or like we think it's going to go in the next couple of hours like you need to leave because i've been looking at more animals that like survive in a volcano way and i couldn't find loads but there's this one which is pretty incredible it's the galapagos land iguana and so it lives on Ferdinandina Island, Ferdinandina, and it's pretty incredible because they take advantage of the thermal heat coming off the volcano, and 2,000 of these iguanas, right, trek for 10 days from the coast of the island all the way up to the volcano crater floor, and then once they get there, they lay their eggs in the ash of the crater because it's the perfect temperature to incubate a baby iguana right but apparently they're able to sense increased volcanic activity and then if it's too like if they feel like it's too dangerous they they leg it and they don't go into the crater but how do they know we're just gonna have to watch them and mm. and see what what all the other measurement systems are doing at the same time. <laughs> if you see 2,000 iguanas legging it past your front door, you know you've got to get Yeah, up. and just see what, what spikes, you know. Was it was it the heat? <laughs> was it the gas? Was it seismic? Was it, what, what were some of the other uh, sensing mechanisms that we have? Smell. Could be the, yeah, it could be the evolution of gas. It smells very mm. sulfury. Maybe they're, they're not keen. Uh, changes in gravity and magnetic fields is another one. Ooh. Imagine if an animal can detect magnetic fields. What would that be like? They can do that, can't they? I thought they could already do that. Isn't that part of some migration techniques? The mi- magnetic fields of the... Uh, that might be wrong, but I feel I would do more research into that because I feel like that is true, that some animals do know about magnetic fields. Yeah, I, I think I heard the same thing, but I couldn't say exactly why without more research. Future episode, I think. <laughs> but i mean the way humans do it is they use a whole different range of techniques right so do the iguanas do the same thing or do they have some more refined way of sensing a particular thing you must have one like really good sense that is like a volcano sense that is like because obviously they've lived there for so long if they've evolved along with the volcano then it's like an evolutionary advantage to survive so if you didn't know when it was going to erupt then you'd be pretty dead but what if they had a very what if they were very pessimistic and just and and just never used the crater (laughs) you know because they thought oh that's a bit risky let's not use it this time and and so that's why they survived they're just really cautious yeah but then they'd never lay their eggs would they so then they wouldn't have survived because if they were too cautious they'd never have made it to the crater in the first place Mm. do you think there are different Galapagos land iguana behaviours where some of them are like no I'm not doing that it's a stupid idea I don't care if I never have children I just imagine the conversation it was oh, 10 days to get here you're really not coming down no I'm not doing it this year I don't, I don't like the look of it I've just got a feeling maybe maybe there's a certain like portion of the iguana population that's always going to go and the rest of them are like nah not today thanks do you think they there used to be like 2 million <laughs> And they've all been like 
they've died out because only the bravest ones survive or only the ones with the best volcano senses yeah how long has the galapagos land iguana species been around i would say probably a fairly long time but i couldn't put a number on it i guess something different to think about in relation to volcanoes going back to your point about um the iceland volcano that i think was in 2010 when it erupted and stopped flights yeah. was like the big effects that some volcanoes can have there are a few disaster movies where they erupt to an extent where they they produce all this ash that completely changes the atmosphere and kills all life as we know it because the sun mm. can't get through and it could get really cold and whatever else and i swear that was a thing in my geology lectures in my undergrads like 20 years when i did this when i was studying this that there was a large volcano that did actually hasten huge changes in life this is how like the earth's atmosphere was formed right in the beginning right so like if you go back like four and a half billion years all we had were volcanoes spewing out gas and rocks and all sorts of things and it's only because of that and because of like the earth gradually cooled down that we got water and enough like, there was way more carbon dioxide four and a half billion years ago than there is now. And then gradually that cooled and then formed, like, a more normal atmosphere. But obviously it took billions of years to get to that point. I was going to say, we can't really expect another volcano to erupt and sort of save the climate emergency that we're precipitating by human activities. That would be great. <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened? If it just wiped out all, like... All of the, uh, you know, emissions since the start of the industrialization age yeah yes. that would be a great benefit if you had better air quality would you have better air quality or would it be a bit sulfuric it's full of minerals though isn't it like aren't they really good like you know when you get wine from volcanic regions isn't it supposed to be like really different because of all the minerals in the soil ah so that's why people live near it for the wine yeah i mean sicily is built on olive oil wine pistachios also almonds <laughs> because you can grow it because the soil is so like nutrient rich right yeah so maybe it's like in the food that you eat rather than in the air like you're just getting in extra volcano nutrients all right so i'm imagining an extreme environment that has strangely rich soil that's good for growing things but questionable air quality and at <laughs> some point something terrible might happen like either ash choking me or laying on roofs so heavily that it causes them to collapse which apparently is uh, one way that people have died from volcanoes oh, oh my god yeah or, or being struck by lightning uh, <laughs> um would is that somewhere i'd want to live are the benefits worth it and what would i need to do to adapt to live there with less fear of death surely the chances are pretty small like the benefits potentially outweigh the good because loads of people live in volcanic regions right then all those people that live in mexico so like the chances of your home like getting destroyed you getting struck by volcanic lightning have got to be pretty low it all depends on whether the volcano is going to go erupt in the first place right or how severe it is because if it's constantly erupting but it never really does very much it, you know it doesn't reach you i mean yeah maybe don't live on the on the crater rim but you know <laughs> I think one of the, the worst eruptions of Mount Etna, from where it is inland, it did actually erupt into one of the major cities. But the last time it did that was the 1600s. So you're not going to live 400 years. So maybe that's why people are okay with living there because the next eruption isn't due in their lifetime. I guess it's about knowing your volcano as well. Like if you know that your volcano is pretty minor, 
in the scale of things and it might do one small eruption but chances are it's not going to do anything big then it's probably fine and you can just enjoy all the nice wine and almonds and pistachios but then if you live like by a really scary one then I guess you might be really concerned that it would destroy your home and livelihood but then that's providing that you have the like opportunity and means to move like some people don't have a choice do they you've got to live where you've got to live yeah so Given everything we've just discussed, would you guys live on or near an active volcano? Oh, yeah, go on. A little bit of danger. <laughs> I enjoy it. You, do you want to live with the landing one? Yes. I mean, no, because there's not much there apart from them. But <laughs> I quite like it. I could take a trip to the Galapagos. To be fair, living in the Galapagos would be great. Yeah, I'd risk it for the volcanoes. I think I'd be all right. I'm pretty risk averse, so I wouldn't. It's just too much so to handle as a baseline, you know, being in a very high risk eruption er- area. I quite like how mild the UK is in every way. <laughs> we are very like below <laughs> average for a lot of those like danger things, like very few earthquakes, hardly any volcanoes. Yeah. Tsunamis aren't going to happen on the channel, are they? Probably not. <laughs> Flooding and high winds seem to be the, the worst thing as we get here in comparison. Right, a flood in England, I feel like, is its own thing compared to, like, a volcano explosion. I think I would rather suffer death by volcano than death by flooding because people can't manage the land appropriately. Yes. There you go. I'll take that. I mean, what a way to go as well. Like, those people that made the documentary, they really committed. Like, they did get killed in a volcanic eruption, but that was their life's work. Like, if they were going to go, that was the way they were going to go. Oh, I feel like we've probably gotten about as far as we're going to go in this conversation. We've kind of rambled around how how can you predict a volcano and said, we're not really sure. It seems to depend on some really complicated modelling and lots of different types of data being collected and a good understanding of the history of the volcano. And as volcanologists, we're not going to be able to answer this question as thoroughly as we'd like. <laughs> So given that I've just really hastily summarised most of the things we've discussed that have been scientific rather than weird speculation, I feel like that's probably a good point to end the episode. So if you've enjoyed listening to this and you've got any questions, you can find us on social media. And if uh, if you would like to buy us a coffee, we would really, really appreciate that. And it would be great to see your support on our coffee fund. So until next time, where I think we're meant to be talking about um, the physics of the metaverse, which is very different and very exciting. Uh, I'll see you later. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.